listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. We have a great show today. And back in the day when MTV was MTV, which was music video TV, it had music videos. Now they have shows like the Jersey Shore and, you know, Teen Mom and all that stuff. But back in the day, the videos for us watching it was such a great thing because we got to know the artists. Before that, we really didn't know artists. We would see them on, you know, like midnight, uh, one of those midnight specials or a TV show, or you see them in concert. But this showed your their personalities. And like my guest today, you know, we saw him in one of the best videos that's ever been done. And he was in a wedding wearing vans with his tux. And we all thought, this is the coolest guy ever. And my guest is Greg Ken. How you doing, Greg? I'm doing great, Steve. That, 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 you know, I do. I remember wearing the vans with the tuxedo. It was a nice, nice combination. It was good. I mean, I'm getting married in September. And if I did that, my, my future wife would kick my ass. But it's not the 80s. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, we made so much, uh, we made a whole bunch of videos in the early days, but Jeopardy was the one that really blew it up for us. And, you know, at that time, MTV was just getting started, I think it was their first or second year, and they really were looking for content. You know, they were looking for, most of the videos in those days were fake live or some type of, or, you know, chicks running down alleys with lingerie on, but there were no concept videos, and we were the, one of the first to actually have, a, you know, a, a storyline, and it was like a little mini horror movie, uh, and it worked, it was really great, and we, the, uh, the, uh, the director was a guy by the name of Joe Day, and Joe had some really good, you know, first of all, we sat down and a couple of weeks before that and talked about what, what do you want to do on the video? And I said, you know, I, I really don't like videos and I, I, you know, it just seems like the same old crap every time. He says, well, what are you into? And I said, well, I'm into horror movies. I love that. And he says, oh, that's it. Let's do a night of living dead thing. And, uh, it worked out. It worked out great programming wise because MPV, played the heck out of it uh you know it was like two or three times a day uh because it was it was the first one the first concept video that they had of course about a week later everybody started you know uh, thriller came out and uh, a bunch of other stuff but i believe we were the first and it really set up things uh in in mtv land for me because from that point on, you know, I was like, you know, one of the guys in the club. Well, you know, what's funny. I watched the video today and, you know, and because, you know, it's one of those things. And I remember because I'm, I'm 55 and I was watching MTV when it was first on. And the thing about the video is you're right. It is like it's like a story. And just from the skeleton when you get married and the, when you see the morphing of the ball and chain, it was special effects that now people may say, you know what, special effects are so advanced. But back then, you wouldn't expect to see that in a video. No, no. And, you know, that was that was part of, I think, why the whole thing was so popular, because you know, it was the first one like that. And they were really, I mean, MTV was looking for content. They were looking for videos that were a little different, and that one really fit the bill. Also, I got to tell you, it was uh, 
the, the song itself, Jeopardy, kind of sold itself. You know, it really it really went out there and, and made a lot of converts. Uh, I remember when the day that we wrote that, Steve Wright, the bass player in the Greg Kin Band, came over to my house. He just bought, you know those little Casio keyboards they used to have in the 80s? Yeah, I had one. <laughs> it was about a foot long. It was just a small little thing. And it had a funky little drum machine in there. And he came over and he said, check this out. And he starts playing that bump, 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 starts playing the riff to Jeopardy. And he had a little drum machine going, and like out of the clear blue sky, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It just popped into my head. Our love's in jeopardy, and we I started singing that, and we wrote that song literally in 15 minutes, which you you know is always that's always a sign that it's going to be a good song when you write it like it, it writes itself, you know. Uh, one, making the video was, you know, was a was like a labor of love. Now you are a horror fan, I can tell, because I believe you're a novelist, which a lot of people don't know. I wanted, to, I want to talk about your music career, but I want to talk about your novels because they look very cool. And I just found out about this doing my research this week. And you, you know, Jeopardy was a horror type video in a comic way, and you're novels i believe the first few ones are horrors and then you get the murders murder type stuff but when did you decide to become a novelist because you know you were a successful musician you were a dj how did the novels come about well i'd always been a writer you know going back to junior high school and i used to write short stories and fill notebooks with all kinds of crazy stuff um and i always and i was a huge reader and you know back in the day uh when I was on the road back in the eighties, I was I was a Stephen King fanatic, so I wrote just about I read everything that he put out, and I really liked the the horror genre. And I thought to myself, you know, I could do this. This isn't that hard. And so I remember writing uh, the, my first novel, which was horror show. Um, let's see. I guess that was nineteen. 19- I think 95. Okay. Uh, and I remember writing it first as a short story of about 50 page short story. And, uh, and I sent it to my, uh, my literary agent and she said, you know, you should think about expanding this. So I sat down and, you know, the road, uh, just like the song, the, the novel wrote itself and it was really pretty, you know, it was, it was very easy. I, I thought it would be a lot harder. I kind of lost, I learned a lot about editing and I learned a lot about the basics of writing, you know, kind of when I had a, uh, an editor at Tour Books, which was my original publisher. And, uh, her name was Natalia Aponte. She was a great editor. And, you know, she helped me go from, like, a junior weight to, like, a professional writer. You know, little things that uh, I did, you know, I I guess you, 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 you live your life and you kind of know stuff. But at the same time, like, I didn't know, you know, a weak verb from a non-weak verb. And right. it took Natalia to say, you know, you, you write this sentence, he was walking down the street. Well, that's not a good sentence. It's not? 
But he was walking down the street. Right. No, he walked down the street. He not was walking, he walked down the street, and that's a stronger verb. Yes, he walked down the street, and, and I when I made that connection, I thought, wow, you know, maybe a third of the stuff that I'm writing is that was walking type of, uh, you know, editing. And once I learned how to do that, and I really, really improved my, my writing a lot, and you know, like I said before, I'd always been a writer, and I just was waiting for the time. Uh, it also, I got to tell you, it the, the timing of it. Uh, I just start working my uh, my radio gig at K Fox, so I was home. You know, I, I'd been on the road pretty much most of my adult life, but you know, I was uh, suddenly I was getting up at four in the morning and doing the morning show on K Fox. And uh, I'd get home like noon or one, and I had the rest of the day. So I started writing in earnest when I had all of that time. And it was great because, you know, I wasn't on the road. You know, it's two-edged sword because by not touring all those years, and it was about maybe 18 years of not touring, you know, we lost a lot of ground. And people, you know, now I go out on the road, people are like, oh, geez, I didn't realize you were the guy that did Jeopardy, or you were the guy that did the breakup song, or Lucky, or something like that. And uh, so on the one hand, I had tons of time. I was on the radio every day, uh, and I was working on the novel on a daily basic basis, and then... Eventually, when the thing was done and I submitted it to tour books, they accepted it on the first pass. It was wonderful. And uh, I, I that actually, the first uh, horror show was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award for uh, from the Horror Writers of America uh, for Best First Novel. So I was really stoked about that. And I got to go to the... Uh, the horror writers convention and uh i you know i got to hang out with peter straub and people it was really cool and um you know they, they welcomed me into my thing and i i just uh, i banged out four novels in four years that'd be horror show the second one was uh shade of pale and then there was uh big rock, big rock beat. beat yeah and then uh, mojo hand and it was just a real nice four novels. They were all, they were all more or less related. Um, and then a couple of years went by until I finally started writing again, uh, which was uh, Rubber Soul and Painted Black. And now they, they were, they're based on the Beatles and Brian Jones are involved in that. What made you go that direction was it because you've loved music all your life and you love those bands or what made you choose? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I was, uh, first of all, I've been a music fanatic my entire, my entire life. And I love the, the Beatles and I love the Stones. And when I had the idea, you know, also a lot of these, a lot of these novels start out as short stories. And I had written this, uh, it was a, a carved in rock, which was an anthology of, short stories by rock musicians and I had guys like uh oh jeez, you know, uh 
uh, Ray Davies and uh, Graham Parker and these people like that. It was really kind of a lot of fun. And the and the short story that I wrote for that was um, it was called Mirror Gazing with Brian Jones, and uh, it was really the the beginning of that novel. So what I did was I expanded that novel into Rubber Soul. But you know, it was so much fun writing Rubber Soul because you know I lived that stuff. I didn't have to look up a lot of stuff because I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, specifically, and you know, the nicest thing, I got to tell you, the highlight of working on those uh, Beatles and Stones novels, you know, I was on the radio at that time, and uh, on the morning show, I was uh, interviewing everybody. So I got to interview um, Paul McCartney a couple of times, uh, Ringo Starr a couple of times, Jeff Embray, George Martin, you know, people that were really involved in the in the, the in the Beatles world, and uh, it was just you know, like for instance, all that stuff that happened in the Philippines. You know, all of that really happened. I remember reading about it at the time, and it was you know etched in my mind. So, you know, uh, it was that that was another novel that just wrote itself, Rubber Soul. I. And I had a great time doing it, too, by the way. It was a lot of fun. Well, you, you're accomplished with that, but I want to talk about your music career because you, you mentioned the Beatles. And now, I, I, when I do my research, I checked, I checked out something, and someone said, well, an article said, that you, when you saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, that changed your life. Yes, it did. I remember, God, I think it was like about 13 and uh, I remember, because back in those days, you know, the whole family would watch the, the Ed Sullivan show. We only had one TV. Back in those days, TVs were furniture. <laughs> it was in our living room. It was this huge, big wooden box, and you opened it up, and, you know, and I remember watching, because we watched Ed Sullivan every week, and the whole family would watch it. And I remember my, my sister, who was three years younger than me and my dad and my mom, my dad's going, look at their hair. Oh my God. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you look back on that now, they're so conservative. They're so, they're so tame, you know, they're so, you know, white bread that it, it doesn't, you know, you look at that. And of course, people were threatened by that. And of course the stones were, you know, that, that was even, that was even worse. So I just, I loved it. It became my life. I remember I was in junior high school, and we left Friday, junior high, and my hair was combed back like Dion. Dion DeMucci was my, my idol at the time. Okay. And I used to, and everybody had good pompadours, right? So I had a pompadour. <laughs> then that Sunday on the Ed Sullivan, we saw the Beatles for the first time. I went back Monday morning, and every guy in the entire school <laughs> was now combing their hair forward, you know, skipping the grill cream, and, you know, we'd all made that shift to the to the Beatles, right? You know, in one weekend, that's, the that's, direction that's... of our hair changed and the direction of our lives changed. Now, were you playing music before then? Yeah, I did. I I got a when when I was about thirteen years old, I got a uh, a beat up old guitar, 
and uh, I started working on it, and I, I finally got to the point where I could play a couple of songs, and my my mom took me down to uh, the pawn shop. My uncle James, who you have to realize, we we lived in Baltimore, and it was a close knit neighborhood. My my uh, my uncle James lived on the corner. We were in the middle of the block. My grandmother was two blocks away. You know, we were all there. And uh, one day, uh, I finally talked my mom into getting a guitar, and the only place to go in those days was the pawn shop. And uh, so my Uncle James said, look, you got to go to this pawn shop. It's the best one in Baltimore. He wrote down the address. And uh, my mother took me down there on a Saturday morning to buy a guitar. I had $40 saved up. You know, I figured $40, I could get a hell of a good guitar, right? <laughs> <laughs> we it just so happens that that pawn shop was in the middle of the block and the block was this was this area of Baltimore downtown where it was all strip shows and burlesque things and you know porno huts and every you know you see my mother dragged me down that street I was my eyes were as big as saucers I'm looking in the strip clubs and there's you can see Kit stripping I mean you know and the sleazy back saxophone music is leaking out onto the street my mother grabbed me by the hand and she pulled me down that that street quicker I never had, and I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen anything like that. We finally got to the end of the block, and there was Livingston Loan. That was the name of the pawn shop. And man, I walked in there. I remember it took me about 15 minutes to, I bought a K guitar uh, for 40 bucks, and that was my first guitar. And of course, my mom never took us back to the uh, to the to the lot, the block. The block is world famous, by the way. Now, now you you got the guitar, and then you started playing more. Now, you were you won some contest in Baltimore or something? Oh yeah, yeah. I well, I see. When I first started, I was a folky, and my uh, my cousins, who are a year older than me, they had all the Kingston Trio albums. So I started borrowing the Kingston Trio albums, and I would learn how to play these three-chord Kingston Trio songs. You know, they're pretty basic stuff. And uh, lo and behold, uh, when I saw the Beatles, I realized, oh my God, these are the same three chords that I've been playing all along. And now they work on Beatles songs. So it was it was a real revelation. And at the time, uh, you know, I was just, uh, I'm a, I'll, I'll confess to you, I'm still a three-chord guy. You know, I've never really, I've always been like a three-chord guy. And uh, it was it, it was something that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get enough of it. I loved it. I took that guitar in my room and I played it all day long. And eventually the Beatles came along and then I started working on Beatles songs. And, uh, you know, the first, I remember buying... The Free Wheel and Bob Dylan, first album that I got by Dylan. And I listened to him and I said, man, this guy's writing songs. I can do this. And I started writing. I remember the worst, uh, you know, the first couple of songs that I wrote and they were horrible. But I wrote them anyway. <laughs> and uh, I had, like, in my mom, 
I had a little reel-to-reel tape recorder, one of these little Magnavox jobs. I don't, I don't remember what it, what the. It was a little, you know, and the 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 spools of tape were like three inches. Right. And I and I had a little reel tape recorder, so I'd go into my bathroom, which had great acoustics. I'd go in the shower stall, and I would record stuff. You know, and I recorded a couple of you know basic songs here and there. My mother, unbeknownst to me, heard about this talent contest on our radio station, WCAO, which was the top 40 station in Baltimore at the time. And she sent my tape in. I never knew it. The next thing I knew was three weeks later, and I get a phone call that I won. What did I win? I didn't know I was in anything. No, you you won number you know, the first prize of the talent contest. I thought, oh my god! And I I won three things that changed my life: a Vox electric guitar, teardrop, still got it, uh, a stack of records which I still play to this day, and uh, and a typewriter, an electric typewriter, which I started banging away immediately on. And it was three things that, you know, as my life went by, a typewriter, a guitar, and some records was all I needed. Well, it's crazy, you know, that your mom did that. It's just it's great that she really supported your dream, and that's important when people want to become, you know, in the the arts. It's like when there's a parent in your corner, it does wonders for you. Yeah, you know, and they were, I think they were a little scared uh, as long as I kept my schoolwork up. It was okay. Uh, but you know, uh, like I said before, I was always, it, that, the guitar thing made me special. So like if I went, if I went to the beach and I had my guitar and I started playing, chicks would come and they would stand around me. And I, I thought to myself, oh my God, this is the way to meet chicks. You know, at that point I was so sexually repressed. We all were in those those days. I mean, if a girl said hello to me, I just, you know, I would break out in pimples. Just, you know, <laughs> I would, I would act, he would it just it envelop my face just if a chick said hi. But no, now that I was a guitar player, it was like, oh, play this, Greg, play that. And I, you know, it really changed my life. Now, now, how did you end up, you left to go to California, to San Francisco at a very young age, I believe. How did you choose San Fran? Yeah. How did you choose that, and what did your parents say about that? Uh, well, they were a little freaked out by that, but, uh, uh, you know, I had friends that had gone to the Bay Area, and they were living in uh, Berkeley, uh, and a guy by the name of uh, Matthew Kaufman and another guy by the name of Alan Mason, uh, they were out here, and they were looking to, to get... Uh, to get record contracts. And at the time, Alan got a job as an A&R guy at the, at A&M records. And I remember it was like, I came out here, slept on his couch for about uh, a month or two. And, uh, next thing I know, I, I got in a little apartment and I started, uh, I played in the street, you know, in the old days, busking was a, was a, uh, was a way to make money and I'd go out with uh, with my guitar and I'd play literally on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley and I'd make 40 bucks a day 
which was big money in those days, right. and I could actually support myself. And then one day, a guy walked up to me, a guy by the name of Malcolm, and he said, you know, it's just a shame you don't have a band. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I gotta, I own this, uh, this nightclub called the Long Branch Saloon, and Earthquake was the, was the, was the house band, and uh, they're moving up, and I need a house band, and I need, I need a band by Friday night. It was already like Tuesday. So I lied to the guy. I said, oh, yeah, I got a band. I got a band. We're really good, man. So I ran out and drafted a band. My bass player, Steve Wright, who was uh, with me from day one, he said, yeah, my, my brother-in-law, uh, Larry Lynch, is a hell of a drummer. Let's bring in him. And then he says, oh, yeah, I met this guy uh, in high school, Dave Carpenter, who was a really good guitar player. We put a band together in two days, and that band stayed together for 18 years and made 18 albums now, and a whole bunch of hit records. It's amazing. Well, now, how did you go from getting that gig, you got your band together, when did you sit there and say, okay, we got the band together, you're starting to play, when did you decide to say, we want to record an album? When, when did that take place? When did that come into your guys' minds? Well, nobody wanted us originally we sent out demos uh, we tried to get a m to bite they wouldn't do it nobody wanted us so uh matthew kaufman got came up with the idea of making our own record company berserkly records home of the hits and uh he had enough money for one album and i remember he went to the to the horse track and he bet it all on a horse and he won and uh, we we made enough money to make one album one sampler so everybody had like two or three songs and it was Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers uh, the Greg Kin Band Earthquake and Rubenews the Rubenews were Robbie Dunbar's little brother's band Tom Tommy Dunbar and uh, we went into uh, we went into CBS Folsom Street Studios, no longer there in San Francisco. And uh, we went in one night, we cut the whole album. Everybody had two or three songs ready to go. And we put it out. And uh, it, remember, we didn't have any distribution. We were distri distributing the uh, the album right out of the back of our uh, Volkswagen bus. Right, And we would drive up to these you know, these old little record stores and, you know, each guy would get like three or four copies and you know what? They sold through. And, uh, imagine, uh, my shock when Playboy records run by Hugh Hefner, uh, they, they were starting and it was basically a vanity project for, uh, Barbie Benton, which was, uh, what's his name's, Hugh's uh, girlfriend. And uh, and then I guess his lawyers are saying, well, you just can't have the one girl on the label. you got to have other people. So it's a real legit label and you can get distribution. Well, he comes to me, I guess, got to uh, Matthew, and he said, yeah, I, I'd like to re, I'd like to re-up and, and uh, I'd like to sign the whole Berserkly catalog, you know, all four bands. And that was the beginning. We started. We started making albums. We made one album a year for eighteen years. Now, 
the earlier ones, you know, was Greg Kin and Greg Kin again. But when did you start with putting your name in the titles? And what 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 I like about that is, and I know it was a continued a conspiracy. That was branding, really before branding, because you were the great. Yes, it was. It was. It was the earliest form of branding, and I really dig that. Yes, I remember because the first album was just called Greg Kent. It was like a singer-songwriter album. And then the second album came out, and everybody was going, what do you want to call it? And I said, how about Greg Kent again? You know, that rhymes. That's kind of cute. So we put that out, and that was a great album. It had uh, Madison Avenue and For You, and it just... It got instant FM airplay. Uh, and then the, was like, well, where do you want to go from here? How about next of kin? Oh, that's great. And then at that point, we'd already started a monster, and it just one thing led to another. Jeez, over the years, we probably, well, what did I make? 18 albums with 18 different, right. you know, conspiracy, consolidation. <laughs> oh, God, it just went on and on. Now, Now, in those early days, what was, where were you the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? And because radio was so big. Oh, I, 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 I know exactly where I was. I was driving. I was driving to the ATM machine and it was raining. And I was listening to uh, KSAN, the, uh, the, the big uh, FM station in San Francisco. And the guy says, you know, here's a new, here's a new one from Greg Kinn. And he played, uh, it was For You. I remember him playing For You on the radio. I said, oh my God, I pulled over. I called, I, I, I was on my way to, uh, I was going by Steve's house. And I remember, I forgot about the ATM machine. I ran up to Steve's, I pounded on the door. Steve, we're on the radio. He turns it on and we like, we were dancing around. It was a great moment. And, you know, to this day, I never get sick of hearing my stuff on the radio. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Well, now, you were you were on the radio in San Francisco, and you were a Bay Area band, pretty much. Were you doing a lot of live gigs out there, and were you getting a big following? Yeah, well, that was the kick. We, we had, there were several good nightclubs in Berkeley and San Francisco, so we were playing every every weekend. And it made this band really tight. And at that time, you know, I was writing, you know, a song a week probably. So we would, you know, we'd come up with a new song almost every week. And, uh, we, we, we got a following of, you know, all the local freaks. And, you know, we played the Keystone all the time. We used to play the, the Long Branch Saloon and the Stone on Broadway and, uh, the Mabuhai Gardens. And I mean, there was a ton of stuff. Uh, and I had a great time. I mean, it was a wonderful time and we were young and, you know, it was like us against the world. Now, now the breakup song was this, the hit that got a lot of people to recognize you across the country. How did that come about that that was the hit that sort of broke you guys out? Because I remember, you know, I grew up near Philadelphia where I live now. I moved back from L.A. And back then we listened sure. to MMR and YSP. And, and we would hear those songs. And plus you would just and you would it would break out. But how did it get from you guys were in San Francisco? You're playing these gigs. You're having airtime out there. What made you get national? What was that? What was it? What made the breakup song put you guys on the map? Yeah, you know, actually, nobody knew that the breakup song was going to be a hit. And as a matter of fact, I think Valerie was the 
was the single, the first single from that album, ironically. Uh, what we did, we, we used to go on the road and we would play, you know, like if we play Cleveland, we'd play the Agora. Or if we play Cincinnati, we would play at Bogarts. Or if we were playing, uh, you know, wherever we played, there was a rock place, a club. And if you went and played the club and you went on the, on the radio and we do a lot of interviews, uh, they usually, they would play it. And this was even before the, they were singles. They were still album cuts and people started playing the breakup song and it just, it just, it just hooked on. I remember, uh, the record company berserkly saying, Oh, let's put a picture sleeve uh, single of this thing out. And you know, it was, it was a big hit. It was our first really top 10 record. It was great. Now, as that happens, you're young guys, you've been around, you know, since the start, how did your life start changing? You know, people start knowing the song, you're getting known as a band. You probably have expectations. Oh yeah. What, how was oh, your well, life hey, well, the, First of all, we got a lot better dope. You know, we were, we were smoking the really the best. Everybody was our friend. You know, we knew everybody in Berkeley. Uh, I would walk down the street and people would go, Hey, Greg, love the new album. You know, it was just, uh, it was very organic. One thing led to another. There were no big leaps or bounds. We went one foot in front of the other for basically the whole thing. Now, then you started playing arenas as you were getting bigger. And as you said, Jeopardy came out, which was a huge hit. And I read that you opened for some bands like the Dead and the Stones and Journey and stuff like that. What was that like? Especially playing with, as you said, you love the Stones. If you opened for the Stones, what was that like going on tour with them? Because they were people that you... Oh, man, you can't imagine. It's so big. First of all, you look out at the audience. We were playing like the Kingdom, places like that, 80,000 people a show, and they'd sell out like two or three shows. I mean, it was unbelievable. And of course, your heart's in your, in your mouth when you go out on stage because it's such a huge, you play, you all, and this is one of my pet peeves over the years. You play it, you always overplay when you're in front of that many people. You start jumping around and acting like Pete Townsend and you start losing your breath and you have to relax and play it like it was a small club. And one of the nice things that I got to meet the Stones and Charlie Watts was saying, yeah, what we do is we turn down and we play it like it's a small club. We don't think about there's 80,000 people. It's more like 80 people. And, uh, and you know, I took his advice and it really worked. I mean, we, we did what we did, but we did it without any kind of frantic craziness. You know what I mean? After the first gig, we settled down, and uh, yeah, I, I felt like, wow, we're really making some inroads here. Plus, you know, when you're playing in front of, you know, we were playing with Journey, and it was like, you know, 60,000, 50,000 people a shot in a lot of stadiums and stuff. That was real easy, man. It was, uh, after we got used to it, maybe two or three gigs, it was just like falling off a log, and we learned how to play and project in front of a huge audience. And that was, you know, cause we were a club band essentially at that point, And we learned how to be an arena band. Now, when you're becoming an arena band and you're playing these nights and you know, there's going to be big crowds, 
does it make you tighter as a band? And do you feel that your showmanship improves? Like you said in the beginning, you were jumping around, which that's not really an improvement. But do you feel that your showmanship and your confidence starts growing as you keep doing these shows? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Confidence level goes up. Uh, and you start really relaxing into it so that it's, you know, it's not a shocker every time, every night. Um, you know, I had to get a little, uh, we'd learned to learn how to travel well. Uh, you know, we learned how to make the most out of our sound checks. I mean, we would go to sound checks and they would give us a half an hour and we'd do one or two songs and then we'd work on other whatever songs, you know, our new songs. So it always had, uh, we would look forward to the, uh, to the sound checks as, as, you know, little rehearsals where we got to work on new material. And, you know, it was just like relaxing. Once we relaxed into that, I remember having a ball. It was a lot of fun, especially playing the, those big venues. Now, did you open for the dead? Yes, we did. I, I had a, yeah, we did a couple of times. What uh, was that like? Because there's such a different. <laughs> I learned a big. Uh, I didn't learn a big lesson. A big because one time, the first time we opened for the Dead was at Spartan Stadium in San Jose. Big, I mean, fifty, sixty thousand people, deadheads all, and uh, we were. <laughs> the the backstage was really nicely put up, uh, made into a uh, Moroccan tent. <laughs> You know, this was a Bill Graham show, and he used to really go all out. The backstage area was a big Moroccan tent, and the dead were in there, and I wandered in there, and and, and uh, Jerry Garcia says, hey, Greg, come over, sit down with me, and they're smoking this huge hookah, just <laughs> stoked full of hash. He says, sit down and have a couple puffs. So I sit down with the, and I, you know, first of all, the whole dead was there. The whole gang was there. We're all sitting around on cushions around this big hookah. And I maybe, maybe had 10, 11 tokes. The next thing I know, the guy's singing, uh, you're, you're on in five minutes. I go, what do you mean I'm on? What, what is this? Hey, this is a gig. Don't you remember? Oh, my God. I forgot. We went out there and we played Jeopardy and we played Breakup Song and all that kind of stuff. Nothing. Nothing. No reaction. Then... I said, well, fuck it. Let's just, you know, play it, whatever we play. Like, you know, I think we did, we did a 20 minute version of Johnny be good. And we got a standing O. <laughs> and I said, you know what? From now on, when we play with the dead, throw out the set list, this jam. And of course we, we played with them many times over the years, all over the country. And it was always a fun. It was always a groove because. You didn't. You didn't plan anything. You just went out there and jammed. Now you, you know. You said you played Jeopardy. Now Jeopardy ended up being an, a Weird Al Yankovic song. How did that happen? Did he call you? And did that affect? Yeah. The record, did it did it affect the record sales too? I would guess because people hear it and they go, "Where's the song from?" How did this? How did he get in touch with you? He called me up out of the clear blue sky and he said, I got a, a parody I wanted to do. Now in those days, you had to get the permission of the guy you were parodying. So he, and of course I gave him the permission because I was very flattered that, uh, that he would, you know, cover one of my songs and he did a great version. I, I lost on Jeopardy. I mean, she's brilliant. And, uh, I remember, uh, you know, uh, uh, he called me and he said, 
I wanted to do this version. I, the, my one of my aunt, one of my questions was, "Hey, does anybody ever turn you down because he, you know he's been working with all these big big wigs?" He said, "Yeah, the only guy that ever turned me down was Prince." And I guess he just took himself too seriously because he didn't want to be parodied. But I was really flattered that they would parody me. That means that I was well enough known to be parodied. And I got to tell you, God bless Weird Al, because to this day, I still get mailbox money from Weird Al. He put that on a double platinum album, Weird Al's Greatest Hits, and I still get checks. <laughs> See, it Isn't that out. wonderful? See, I know it, but it works out for you because also, as I was saying, I think when people hear the parody, then they want to go hear the original, and then people hear the original, and then they want to look into your music, and I think it works out in the in the original artist's advantage. Yeah, yeah, it does, and it, it makes you. Well, it was like the hit was it was a hit all over again. First, it was a hit for us, and then by the fall, he comes out with his version. It's a hit all over again, and it just uh, it just bolstered whatever we were doing yeah it was great now now when you did jeopardy what was the budget on that video i think it was a hundred grand and it was the most that we'd ever spent we got the money as an advance from the record company we said spent the whole damn thing every penny uh which was outrageous i mean back in those days you know five or six grand would be a, a you know, just do a fake live thing. But, you know, we, we put our, our heart and soul into that and it became a huge hit. And I think that probably more than anything made Jeopardy a big hit. Now, that, that video. Now for your following videos, I know, I think, uh, Lucky had a big budget too. Did they just decide they'll give yeah. you a big budget? Cause you knew what you were doing and how to actually make a video that got views. Well, yes, yes and no. First of all, we were the only guys, I think, that had the cojones to do their entire budget on the video. Like, ro we would roll the dice. You know, we put out Jeopardy. We only had this amount of money. Okay, let's spend the whole damn thing on the video. We would, uh, you know, normally had a publicist and, you know, publicity and all that kind of stuff. We put all of our, our uh, eggs in one basket. And, you know, it paid off. And, of course, the others, I think once we did Jeopardy, people were expecting big budget videos. So uh, Lucky was a biggie, and uh, Reunited was huge. I remember that. With, that was a parody of um, uh, Wizard of Oz. So, and as a matter of fact, we had real, uh, the actual little people, you know, the Hiram, and they came in the... <laughs> we wound up getting on the wrong side of the munchkins when, when Gary, my, my uh, guitar player in the band, no longer with us, by the way, said, Hey, somebody tell these midgets what to do. And they, and the guy, they got really pissed off and they go over and kick, they kick, uh, kick them in the shins. And the guy goes, it's little people, you asshole, little people. <laughs> so they got, they got, they walked. And they and we had to hire kids. We the kids of all the people that were in the video came in, put the stuff on. We put them on makeup, and we we kept going. Now, what was it like? You guys were in SNL, and I, I believe, and also American Bandstand. What was it like on being shows with them on shows like that? Especially because you know Bandstand was so huge when we were younger, 
and then you're on it. And then SNL, when you would go on SNL, so many people watched it back then, you would automatically yeah. record sales up. What was it like playing those two shows? Yeah, you know, both of them were huge. And I, I really liked Dick Clark, and he'd been a really nice guy. As a matter of fact, later in life, I signed with Dick Clark Productions as our, as our uh, booking agent. Dick was always really nice to me. And when I was on the Dick Clark show the second time, um, my father had written a thank you letter to Dick Clark. Thanks for having my son on your show. We really appreciate it. Right? My father wrote this. He sends it in there. The next time I'm in there, he says, come into my office for a second. I go into Dick Dick's office. Dick Clark, he's got my father's letter framed. He goes, we've had 2,000 bands on this show. I never, ever got a thank you letter from a dad. Wow. And he said, that's why I'm never going to. And he always asked me, how's your dad? You know what I mean? Because we were on Dick Clark maybe a half a dozen times over the years. And uh, every time I'd go there, he would bring up the, the, the as a matter of fact, I think one of the, if you look on, uh, YouTube, you can find one of those clips, and he's asking me about my dad. It's really wonderful. Now, what was SNL like? Oh, that was wonderful. You know, I got our we were we were uh, right across the hallway. Our dressing room was right across the hallway from uh, the guest host for that time, and it was uh, oh god, it was. Uh, Oh, you know, the, the sports, uh, Howard Cosell. Okay. Howard Cosell. And I got to hang with Howard the whole week because he rehearsed the whole week. And he used to like to drink shots of old granddad all day long. And I'd sit there with him and we'd do shots. And <laughs> he was just great. He was always Howard Cosell. You know, he would critique every day they'd have a crew meal catered. So we'd go down and we'd in and he goes, this meatloaf is out of this world. He was always Howard, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't uh, give this dog. I wouldn't give a dog this this salad. You know, he was always. I remember him coming into our dressing room and going, "I'm introducing the guys in the band," and I'm going, "Here's Greg Douglas. Here's Larry Lynch. Here's Steve Wright." He goes, "Be right, University of Iowa." Number one draft choice of the Cincinnati Bengals. And he's hey, you had it all, kid, and you blew it. You blew it. What happened? And I said, hey, Howard, different Steve Wright. He goes, oh, never mind. <laughs> so so you're, you're playing now. What made you get into being a DJ? What happened? Did you guys stop touring? What, what, what happened there? Yeah, a couple of things happened at the same time. First of all, I, I, I signed my book deal, so I needed to be home to write. Uh, I had been filling in a, for a fan, for a guy that was uh, doing 7 to Midnight. I filled in for a couple of weeks when he was on vacation, and they offered me a job. And a week later, he said, hey, we don't have a morning show because, uh, oh God, I think it was... Uh, I, whoever was doing the morning show quit. He said, could you be, you know, do the morning show until we find another guy? I said, yeah, no problem. 
And after a couple of weeks go by, I'm getting up at four in the morning. I said, hey, I can't do this, John. This is really, this is killing me. And he has a little piece of paper and he, on his desk, and he writes down a figure. And he slides it across the desk. He goes, would you do it for this much money? And I looked at the piece of paper and I go, what time do you want me to be here, man? <laughs> and my, 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 uh, my, my salary tripled. And I realized, oh, my God, that morning is where the money is. And, you know, it wasn't, besides getting up at four, that was horrible. The rest of it was pretty cool. Now, were you getting tired of being on the road and, and you weren't really releasing? I was very, I was. I was fried and I, I needed to get home and be home for a while. So, I, you know, I was basically 18 years at, at home and I, I wrote four novels. And, you know, it was a very fruitful time. When I finally got fired from K Fox, which was about three and a half years ago, Why? Uh, you know, I'd been there for 18 years and it was time to move on. Suddenly I was back out on the road again and it was a lot of fun. So uh, nowadays I look at, I really look forward to going on the road. Now you sat there, you know, you're on the road and in 2017 you came out with, with Rekindled and that was your, I believe, your first uh, album of brute. Totally yeah, first, material since yeah 90, first one in a while, since yeah. Since like 96. What made you decide to do that now? Did you just miss the writing? Did you miss the new songs? Did you want to mix I it sure up on did. your road? Yeah, I had a lot of ideas in my mind because I hadn't been writing. I'd been writing novels. Uh, yeah, I hadn't written a song in a couple of years, and it was really great. Uh, they, the bass player in the Greg Kin band now, the guy that replaced Steve Wright, Many many years ago is Robert uh, Robert Barry. Robert Barry's a very good musician, and he has a recording studio right there in in Campbell, California. So uh, every two three days a week, go down to the uh, recording studio and we throw down some ideas. And before you know it, we were we were done an album, and it was so much fun. It was like you know, let's keep doing it. Now, did you feel your writing style changed? Because, you know, you went from writing songs to writing books, which, as you said, started as short stories. But now you're writing material, and the times have changed in the sounds. How did you find the direction you wanted to write, and did you feel you matured as a songwriter? Yes, I did. Something happened during those years, and not writing really helped. You know, because I, I keep a notebook, and I keep, you know, my song ideas by the time that, that that period was over, I had maybe a dozen notebooks full of song ideas. So, and I was bursting with creativity. So, yeah, it was it was easy to write. I wanted to write. It was something I looked forward to. And uh, you know, having a studio there at my uh, at my beck and call was perfect because we go and kick kick song ideas around. If we like something, we would just put it down on tape. Tape. There you go. It's all on computers now. I'm just an old guy. I I, call, I say albums all the time. I I I can't. Yeah, me I can't too. Get away from it now. I you know as I said, I've been listening to it, and some of the songs have a good '80s sound, and I like it. And but Big Pink Flamingo sort of has a rockabilly sound. What made you What made you choose that sound? Because it's really kick-ass. Sound. Uh, you know that's a great one. I drove I drive by this uh, trailer park on my way to the studio. And every day I used to go through the trailer park and I'd see this really good looking trailer trash chick, you know, with her hair up in curlers and the stretch pants and chewing gum and smoking cigarettes, you know, the kind. 
a trailer park woman, you know? And uh, I was, I was, you know, I drove through there and I was, uh, you know, it took me about 40 minutes to get to the studio for my house. And in the, in the interim, I wrote the song in my head. You know, I would, I just wrote it in my head. I would pull over every once in a while and scratch down some lyrics. And when I got to the studio, I said, Hey, I got a song I do. We got to put it on tape right now. And, you know, the guys are like, okay, you know, let's try it. And I didn't plan it on being a, a, a rockabilly thing. It just turned out that way. Uh, and it, you know what? It was so much fun. We did that in one take, man. It was so much fun. Now, you end this album with A Place We Can Meet, which is sort of slower. Um, what made you decide to end the album with that? You know, it's an interesting idea. That song, each song has a genesis. And the, the guy... Uh, Robert Barry, my bass player and, and studio guy, uh, came up with the, the chorus for that. And he played it with, on, on an acoustic guitar. I go, wow, that's really cool. So I started filling in the verses. And before you know it, we'd written the whole song. And it was so unlike anything else on the album, it just made total sense. And when we were, you know, when we were... Uh, uh, deciding what the songwriting uh, song royalties were going to be, it just felt good having it at the end, you know, and it was a nice coda, kind of like a day in the life. Now, do you sit there, because, you know, we talk about albums, and, you know, I've said this many times in my show when I talk to musicians, how as a kid, you know, you always remember the track listing, because we had side one and side two, and you like side one better than side two, but now everything runs yep. together. But now, have did you plan, Did do you formulate how it's going to be, because you're in the studio and you're doing it with Robert, do you guys sit there and go, okay, this we should go from this track to this track? Like, why was Pink, uh, was the Flamingo song second, because it's, it's, more beat and real catchy or how do you pretty much put your album yeah you know you're right about that because we used to think in terms of first a side and b side and even to this day i still think my mind thinks like that and that's why uh yeah it was the second song it was just it was just right at the second spot because you want a good rocker at that point and uh you know it, it was a, a change of pace and i really liked it right there near the top so that yeah that was a decision that made itself now how about the other songs did they just drop into place did you did you have a feeling that where they yeah were mostly yeah mostly you know a lot of those stuff was written was written in chronological order you know a lot of that was like you know we would drop these songs into place and they would just work so i don't remember there being a lot of uh mix up when we went to paste the album I remember it being pretty, you know, pretty cut and dry. I mean, it was already 90% done. Now, once again, the title is the branding again. Did you, did you take, because Rekindle's perfect because, you know, you're back after 20 years of not writing anything original. <laughs> yeah. But did it take a while to sit there and go, damn, what term haven't I used that Kin will fit into? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I have a, a, a notebook somewhere with a whole bunch of, probably enough kin names for the rest of my life. I'm worried about the next one. You know, we're already thinking about the next album and I'm thinking maybe kinetic energy. I don't know. 
<laughs> so so you're gonna you're playing another album just because you you probably missed it recording the album because as you said you did 18 albums in 18 years you don't do an album for a while you have to miss that yeah and you know what the, the fact that we're going on the road and we're playing material live and doing versions of uh pink flamingos and stuff like that live it makes you want to come up with more fresh material and that's kind of where we're at right now, as a matter of fact. Now, are you going to do, I know I've checked your website, which uh, there's some dates on it. Are you going to do more dates or are you? Um, oh, are you... yeah. Yeah. Last year we did a, we ended up the year with a bunch of, I went on tour with Rick Springfield, uh, a guy that I'd known going back to the 80s. And we, t we toured back in the, back in the early days. And, uh, you know, he said, hey, you want to come out? go on the road with me and it was just great you know it was out there we did a bunch of gigs like a month's worth of gigs and we're hoping to hook up with somebody like that uh, maybe rick springfield or maybe hall and oats or one of these other acts that's going to go out and work uh, uh yes i want to try to do as many gigs as possible this summer now what's it feel like being back on the stage when you were gone for a while is it still fresh do you still just get up there and love it yeah, I do, man. I'm sorry. I just, I love it. it. It's fresh. I never get tired of it. It's just a kick. And it must blow your mind that there's fans that have been fans of yours forever. Like, you know, I would go, yeah. see, I would go see a Greg Kinn concert, and I remember watching Oh, Jeff man, I'm would... telling you, I just, it's amazing. I just, we had a, the drummer for Earthquake was a guy named Steve Nelson, he just died a couple of weeks ago. So we had a memorial concert at a pub in Berkeley. And all these people from the old days showed up. You know, I mean, and they were fans from the, you know, the Long Branch and the Keystone. And it was amazing. I, I, you know, I hadn't seen these people in 30 years. And there, were, there they were. It was just great. I, I, yeah, well, we make fans. We make them for life. Well, that's awesome, man. You know what? I really want to thank you for... Uh coming on today. It was great talking to you. As I said, I've been a fan for a long time. And then when I saw about the uh, novelist, I said, God, I'm radio. I said, this guy's doing it all. He's like one of those triple, <laughs> triple hat guys. And now... Yeah. Now, hey, let's do it again when uh, when the next thing comes out, whether it's a, the, the next uh, novel or the next... Uh, or the next album we will and, and if you're if you're in philly in the philly area i'm going to hit you up and, I'm, and you're going to put me on the guest list <laughs> oh absolutely i love philly i go there all the time okay well so now your twitter is at greg kin people the website is gregkin.com i believe yes so people yeah. please check out greg kin and you know what do yourself a favor go after you listen to this Go on YouTube and watch Jeopardy and see how cool that video is and look at his shoes. Yeah. So people follow Greg Kane on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 700 episodes. Email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Don't forget, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only going to sit with my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.